Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for November 6, 2009. I'm Jeff Hughes. Today on the program, I'll have a conversation with Claire Demers. She is the Associate Director of the Climate Change Program at the Pemina Institute, and we'll talk about the report that they just released and federal and provincial reaction to it. I'll also have a conversation with Jack Cole. He's the Executive Director of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and he'll talk about international trends on the war on drugs. And finally, Executive Producer and Berkeley alumni Cy Gonick will interview Professor Richard Walker of the University of California in Berkeley about the student-faculty union revolt against the education cutbacks and tuition hikes that are happening in California. Also, music is the weapon, the alert headlines, and around the left in seven days. And these are the alert headlines for the week of November 6th, 2009. A demonstration against the Vancouver 2010 Olympic Games disrupted the torch relay route on its first day and created traffic chaos in downtown Victoria for three hours. Anti-Olympic activists in Victoria and Vancouver allege they are being harassed by police in the Vancouver Integrated Security Unit. Palestinian leaders are accusing the Obama administration of destroying any chance of peace talks after Secretary of State Hillary Clinton backed Israel's refusal to halt expanding illegal Jewish settlements in the West Bank. Up until this weekend, the Obama administration had been demanding that Israel halt all settlement buildings before negotiations could resume, but Clinton announced a reversal of that policy on Saturday during a one-day visit to the Middle East. Israel is refusing to halt construction of about 3,000 houses currently being built in the West Bank or any construction in occupied East Jerusalem. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu criticized the Palestinian leadership for calling for a freeze on illegal settlements. The head of Honduras's Congress said Monday that he, he has yet to decide when to call lawmakers back into session to debate whether ousted pre- President Manuel Zelaya should be reinstated. Jose Alfredo Saavedra said he and other congressional leaders have begun analyzing the contents of Friday's U.S. brokered pact that calls on Honduran lawmakers to vote on whether Zelaya should serve the remaining three months of his term, a decision that could end the country's debilitating four-month-old political crisis. But Saavedra said he has yet to call Congress to meet and will not be rushed despite calls from diplomats not to delay the vote. He said he will first consult with the Supreme Court, which ordered Zelaya's June 28th ouster. As part of the accord struck Friday, the commission will also monitor the creation of a truth commission assigned to investigate the coup that ousted Zelaya, who was rousted from his bed by soldiers and flown to Costa Rica. Zelaya has been inside the Brazilian embassy in Tegucigalpa since September 21st, when he made a surprise return to the Honduran capital. United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has urged countries worldwide to remove travel restrictions for HIV-positive people. The call comes after U.S. President Barack Obama announced a decades-old U.S. travel ban on HIV-positive non-U.S. citizens would be officially lifted. HIV-positive visitors will effectively be allowed entry to the U.S. from early 2010. The U.N. has hailed the decision and urged other countries to follow the example.
Human Rights Watch also welcomed the announcement, stressing that travel or residence restrictions on HIV-positive people are discriminatory, violate fundamental human rights, and impede effective responses to HIV by fostering misinformation and stigma. A new study produced by the Cooperative Financial Services and World Wildlife Fund debunks the idea, lauded by oil companies and the Canadian government, that carbon capture and storage will significantly counter the high level of greenhouse gases emitted in the production of oil from the Alberta tar sands. The application of carbon capture and storage has been widely cited by supporters of the tar sands as justification for ongoing expansion activities. Alberta's proven economically recoverable oil sands reserves almost to 173 billion barrels of oil equivalent, making it second only to Saudi Arabia, Arabia in proven resources. The extraction of oil from the tar sands is incredibly energy intensive. Studies have estimated that well-to-refinery emissions are on average three times more carbon intensive than for conventional oil and that well-to-wheel emissions are between 14 and 40 percent higher than the current average for conventional crude sources. The maximum reductions achievable using carbon capture and storage would therefore be insufficient to meet emerging low-carbon fuel standards, such as those in the European Union and California, even by 2050. In related climate change news, a report on Canada's greenhouse gas targets and policies made jointly by the Pemina Institute and the David Suzuki Foundation has generated controversy after Environment Minister Jim Prentice called it irresponsible. At the same time, Western Canadian provinces labeled the report divisive. The study made an in-depth probe of federal and provincial government policies in order for Canada to meet a 2 degree Celsius target to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 20-25% below 1990 levels. It said strong policies are needed to meet these targets. The study recommended a $50 carbon price per tonne in 2010, which should go up to $200 per tonne by 2020. If Ottawa were to adapt that recommendation, Canada's gross domestic product is forecast to grow 23% between those years, or an annual average growth rate of 2.1%. Prentice said Western Canadian provinces could not absorb the negative effect of proposals by the study. And those are the alert headlines for the week of November 6, 2009. And now around the left in seven days for the week of November 6th to 13th. The 2010 Olympics are quickly approaching and the city of Vancouver is attempting to rid the city of any sign of protest and homelessness, just in time for all the cameras and media coverage. In light of these threats to civic freedoms, a public forum on Olympic security issues will be held on November 9th at the Grandview Calvary Baptist Church. The panel includes area MPs and MLAs and guest speakers from the BC Civil Liberties Association and the Impact on Communities Coalition. The panel begins at 7 p.m. Abdullah al-Maliki is the target of one of the longest national security investigations in Canadian history. During a trip to Syria in 2002, he was arrested, arrested, detained, interrogated and tortured for 22 months in a grave-like cell. On November 9th in Toronto, he will speak about these experiences, detail his harassment by the Canadian government and CSIS and show how Canadian actions directly led to his detention and torture. He will be speaking at the Steelworkers Hall in, Tor in Toronto at 7.15. Malalai Joya will be launching her book, A Woman Among Warlords, in Vancouver on November 14th.
At 27, Joya was elected to Afghanistan's new parliament, but shortly thereafter was suspended because of her unrelenting criticism of NATO-backed warlords and drug barons. She has survived numerous assassination attempts. Her book has been described as a quote, "passionate and devastating critique of Western intervention in Afghanistan." She will be speaking at St Andrew's Wesley Church on November 14th at 7 p.m. Rally in solidarity with Six Nations land rights on November 7th at Victoria Park in Brantford. Brantford, Ontario, has become a ground zero in the struggle over Indigenous rights in Ontario. Most of the city is under land claim, but instead of halting development un- until the status of the disputed land can be negotiated, Brantford City Council is carrying out an aggressive policy of encouraging the criminalization of Six Nation land defenders. Meet at Victoria Park at 1 p.m. on Saturday, November 7th. Buses and carpooling to Brantford is being organized from Paris, Guelph. Kitchener-Waterloo, Hamilton, Toronto, and nearby cities and towns. There are many parallels between the Great Depression of the 30s and our current financial crisis. From November 7th to 11th at the Maritime Labor Center in Vancouver, the World Peace Forum Society is hosting a teach-in that examines the event of that decade and the lesson it provides for our current situation. The workshop begins with plenary sessions and workshops hosted by speakers from across North America. On the last day, the workshops of the workshops there will be a special panel for young people. On November 13th, the Toronto Bolivia Solidarity Group will host a public forum that celebrates Bolivia's approaching presidential and indigenous autonomy elections. The evening includes dance troops, music, poetry, Bolivian food, and a chance to meet the crew who will be in Bolivia filming this historical event. The event is being held at QP 4400 Building, 1482 Bathurst Street, in Toronto, on November 13th at 7 p.m. And that's around the left in seven days for November sixth to thirteenth. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in Seven Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on the tab labeled Events. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. Law Enforcement Against Prohibition (LEAP) is a 13,000-member organization of cops, judges, prosecutors, prison wardens, and others who now want to legalize and regulate all drugs. Their motivation is having witnessed the horror and injustice fighting on the front ro- on the front lines of the war on drugs. Jack Cole is executive director of LEAP and a retired undercover narcotics detective. Welcome to Alert Radio, Jack Cole. Thank you for having me on, Jeff. Thank you for being here. Now, on your website, it's very clear that your message is the war on drugs is a failure. Why does Leap take that position? We take that position because we fought this war now for forty years. We've spent well over a trillion dollars on the war already, and every year we continue it. It'll be another seventy billion dollars down that same rat hole. This is just in the United States. And what do we have to show for all that money? In 40 years, we've made more than 39 million arrests of non-violent drug offenders. We've done everything we can do to destroy their lives, put as many in prison as possible, make sure that they don't get any education, can't work when they get out of jail, and despite all this money so ill-spent on all these lives, pretty much destroyed today, drugs are cheaper, they're more potent, and they're far. Easier for our children to access than they were at the beginning in 
when I started buying them as an undercover officer. Now, that is the very essence of a failed public policy. So LEAP looks at this from the viewpoint of law enforcement, and we know, for instance, if we end drug prohibition like we ended alcohol prohibition in the United States in 1933, we know that the next morning after we ended that nasty law, Al Capone and all his smuggling buddies were out of business. They were off our streets. They were no longer out there killing each other to control that very lucrative market. They were no longer killing us, police officers charged with fighting that useless war. And they were no longer killing our children caught in crossfire and drive-by shootings, all the things we experienced then and now. Jack, you you visited Brazil recently, and you described it as a warm welcome that you received there. Tell me who you spoke to, what you said, and the the response that you got. Sure. Let me tell you first about the warm welcome, and I think... The reason for that was a really terrible thing that happened. Three days before I went down there, there was a shootout among two drug gangs in one of the favelas, they're called. These are uh, uh, like ghettos that are built up along the hillsides. And the police almost never go into them. But there was a, a gang war that went on in one of the favelas, and 33 people ended up dead. Uh, they burned eight buses, and they shot a police helicopter out of the air, killing three police officers. So when I arrived, they were ready to talk about anything that they thought might have uh, the slimmest chance of ending the violence. And certainly what I talk about will end the violence. I was invited down by Brazil to speak to a commission called the Brazilian Commission on Drugs and Democracy. who It's a group that's going to create a declaration for the government uh, to perhaps guide them in their uh, forming of their new drug laws. There's 18 members in that commission, and after I presented to them, 13 of the 18 publicly said that uh, what I had said was correct, that only legalizing legalized regulation of all drugs would end the violence. But they also said that uh, it's not politically feasible for Brazil to legalize and regulate drugs until the United States does something about this. Because they understood that if they unilaterally tried to legalize drugs, the United States would come down on them with economic sanctions, which is true. Why is that the position of the United States government, Jack Cole? Well, I can't really tell you why it's the position. Uh, I can tell you that it is the position, and I can tell you that certainly you folks in Canada have experienced this this problem. Uh, when you, just a couple years ago, when your legislators even considered just talking about the possibility of decriminalizing marijuana, We sent our drug czar up there, John Walters at the time, and he literally threatened the country. He said if if Canada, well, what he actually said was Canada is is contemplating exporting poison to the United States, and if if you try to do this, we will shut down your borders. We will uh, do such searches that 
we will stop all commerce coming across the border, uh, which was sort of like a paper tiger thing. And we have a, a board member for LEAP up there who uh, you're probably familiar with. It's your senator, Larry Campbell, who used to be the uh, mayor of Vancouver. And before that, he was 12 years in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He was sitting at that table. And his he, the story, the way he tells it, is when John Walters said that to him, he said, uh, Yes, Mr. Walters, I'm, I'm sure you have the capability of doing that, but uh, uh, you might think a little bit before you do do it, because the day after you, you do such a thing, Los Angeles will be dark and without water. <laughs> well, if we can't necessarily explain the position of the United States government, let's borrow from the realm of criminal investigation, if we may, and ask the question, qui bono? Who is benefiting from the war on drugs, Jack Cole? Oh, great question, Jeff. Well, let me quote to you something out of a wonderful book called Smoke and Mirrors, The War on Drugs and the Politics of Failure. It's written by a wonderful author, Dan Baum. And in one of the very first pages, he says that the, the country began using police control. This is the United States he's talking about. Uh, using police to control the use of certain drugs in 1914. But the war on drugs in name and spirit started during the 1968 presidential campaign when the country discovered how drugs could stand in for a host of troubles too awkward to discuss plainly. The war metaphor worked for Richard Nixon that year. It continues to work for politicians ranging from Jesse Jackson to Jesse Helms because nearly everyone has found a reason to enlist. Parents appalled by their teens' behavior, police starved for revenue, conservative politicians pandering to their constituents' moral dujin, liberal politicians needing a chance to look tough, presidents looking for distractions from scandal, whites and blacks striving to explain the ghetto, editors filling page one, spies and colonels needing an enemy to replace the communists. The war on drugs is about a lot of things, but only rarely is it really about drugs. Thank you for that uh, commentary, Jack Cole. Now, there were a few things that we talked about in our earlier conversation that you pointed to as significant and progressive change. Now, uh, I understand in your own country, Obama has announced he will no longer um, persecute state-legalized medical marijuana um, organizations. But uh, also, you mentioned, we talked about Mexico. Can you tell us about what changed in Mexico? Absolutely. Uh, Mexico has followed Portugal. Uh, in uh, 2001, in July, Portugal decriminalized the use of all drugs and the possession of personal possession of what they call up to 10 days supply of those drugs. Well, Mexico just followed them by decriminalizing the use of all drugs and small portions of those drugs for possession. That was August 21st of this year. Three days later, they were followed by the Supreme Court of Argentina, who ruled it is unconstitutional in their country to arrest somebody because they want to put something in their body. And it's also unconstitutional to arrest them because they possess 
this drug that they may want to put in their body. And less than a month later, the Supreme Court of Colombia made exactly the same ruling. So when I was invited to Brazil, uh, I went down there uh, October 21st, I really felt that uh, the reason that they invited me down is they, they are looking to do something similar. And sure enough, after they said they can't legalize drugs because the United States would come down on them with economic sanctions, they talked about a hybrid law that would be a combination of uh, what is going on in Portugal with the decriminalization and what is going on in Switzerland where they treat heroin users by setting up clinics, uh, treating drug abuse as a, as a health problem, not a, not a crime problem, and actually distribute government heroin to these users up to three times a day. Let me tell you what happened if I've got time in Portugal. Uh, it's been eight years since they decriminalized drugs, and the outcomes are unbelievable, and they're absolutely counterintuitive to what you would imagine. They said, okay, anybody can use any drug, and we're not going to arrest you for that. We're not going to arrest you for possessing up to 10 days' supply, and they never really uh, defined what 10 days' supply was. But in that eight years since they did that, drug use, um, especially among young people, has dropped dramatically. Children ages 13 to 15 years old, drug use among them has gone down 25%. Drug use among uh, young people 16 to 18 years old has dropped by 22%. And that's not the only plus. They're saving lives. Overdose deaths from heroin are down 52% since they decriminalized drugs. And they're, and they're affecting deadly diseases. HIV infections uh, reported by drug users are down 71% since they decriminalized drugs. And drug use in every category, save one, is down. The only category that raised at all was marijuana. And in the same eight years that this marijuana in Portugal use raised slightly, marijuana use in all the other countries in Europe where they haven't decriminalized increased by four to five times what it did in Portugal. Well, That's amazing. Well, Jack Cole, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you very much for speaking with us on Alert Radio. The website is leap.cc. And thank you once again. Thank you. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm joined now by Claire Demers. She is the Associate Director of the Climate Change Program at the Pemina Institute, which is a sustainable energy think tank. Welcome to Alert Radio, Claire. Thank you. As we uh, commented and reported on in our alert headlines, the David Suzuki Foundation and the Pemina Institute have just published a study recommending what Canada and the provincial governments must do to meet a two-degree Celsius target, and we'll have you explain that in a moment, that would cut greenhouse gas emissions 25% below 1990 levels by the year 2020. 
Now, the recommendations made were immediately rejected by Federal Environment Minister Jim Prentice and by Alberta and Saskatchewan, their governments, which, of course, they would be most adversely affected by this, uh, by the recommendations being adopted. So we would like you, first off, to explain what that two-degree target limit is, please, Claire. Sure. No, that's a good question. So two degrees is a, a, a limit that the scientific community and leading governments around the world have agreed is we do not want to see global warming go beyond two degrees. After two degrees, you get into impacts that are truly catastrophic. And so already the globe has warmed about 0.7 degrees Celsius from the climate change that's happened to date. We've already locked in a lot more climate change uh, due to the nature of greenhouse gas emissions. They last for decades in the atmosphere. So we're already locked into you know, almost double that 0.7. And so we're going to have to act urgently uh, in order to avoid getting even beyond that into that two-degree realm. So we did a study that looked at what would be Canada's what does Canada have to do to play a fair contribution in achieving that global target? Because obviously Canada can't achieve two degrees on its own, uh, but we can play a role and contribute what we do need to contribute. And what we found is that we can do that uh, while maintaining strong economic growth and creating jobs across the economy. And uh, can you tell us specifically what the study recommends as uh, the, the way to achieve that? Yeah, absolutely. So we used economic modeling to look at what would be the effect of a package of policies, actually two packages of policies. So we recommended uh, there was a, a set of policies in order to meet the two-degree target that we just talked about. And we also looked at what it would take to meet the federal government's current target, which is much weaker than the one that we recommend. So in both cases, the main policy that you need is to put a price on greenhouse gas pollution. And you can do that either through what's called a cap-and-trade system or you can do it through a tax on greenhouse gas pollution. And so we found that as sort of the central policy. Then we looked at a number of other policies like tighter uh, fuel efficiency standards for cars and trucks and, and freight vehicles, um, building codes, appliances, a whole suite of things. And uh, again, you know, this is a target. The one that we looked at for the two-degree scenario is a very ambitious target. You'll sometimes hear people say in Canada that it's, it's not possible for us to achieve reductions that deep, but what our study shows is it absolutely is. Well, tell us how setting a price on carbon, and you've got $50 a ton starting, and then by the year 2020, $200 a ton. How would it be enforced, and explain how this would cut greenhouse gas emissions? Sure. So the way this works is right now, anybody, you know, let's take a company, an oil sands company, for example, they can put all this greenhouse gas pollution into the atmosphere where it causes climate change with no cost. Now, obviously, you and I and all of society pays the cost of climate change. And so what we're trying to do is change economic decision-making. So right now, often, dirty technologies are cheaper than clean ones. You know, coal is cheaper than wind. But if you had to actually cover the cost that that pollution is imposing on all of us, it flips the incentive. So all of a sudden, a clean technology um, becomes cheaper and more economically efficient than a dirty one. So you can put when the prices that we looked at in the study are strong enough to really change the way that companies and even individuals make decisions in Canada um, so that clean 
technologies get off the shelf and are deployed and dirty ones no longer make sense. Well, there's a lot of people, I'm sure, who would initially react to the threat to Canadian employment and the economy. What uh, assurances do you have that this project won't put uh, Canada in further economic and employment peril? That's right. That was one of the main things we were looking at. What is the economic consequence of, of all of these policies? And we found very good news. So what we found is that Meeting the two-degree target, you could have economic growth of 2.1% per year, so 23% over the next decade, and that you would create over 1.8 million net new jobs, again, over the next decade. So very strong economic growth. What about uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan, who would likely take the biggest hit? Mm-hmm. So what we did that was new with this study was actually modeling the regional consequences um, of of putting these policies in place, because there have been a few studies that have looked at what are the prices you need, what are the targets, you know, what, what would it do to the economy as a whole. We looked at regional results. And we found, again, now in Alberta and Saskatchewan, you're absolutely right, um, there are certainly differences from what they would be doing under business as usual, but we found continued economic growth. Uh, Alberta would actually lead the country um, with growth of 38%, um, you know, between... 2010 and 2020, they would create over 130,000 net new jobs. Oil sands development would continue. Um, But instead of having it in the unfettered way that it's happening now, we would see companies using technologies um, that would reduce their emissions. I see. Well, the feds and the two provinces have rejected your policy recommendations as divisive, unrealistic, and and unnecessary your response as one of the authors of this study published by the Pemina Institute. Well, we found that, you know, you're absolutely right. We saw the governments of Saskatchewan and Alberta come out and say, look, this is a massive wealth transfer. Now, that, that is absolutely what's not in, you know, that's not in our study. What we found is, in fact, yes, Alberta would have to pay a lot of money to reduce their emissions because their emissions are very, very high. They have essentially a perfect storm of both fossil fuel development, and the use of coal-fired electricity, both of which are very high emissions. Uh, But the vast majority of that funding stays, in the scenario that we modeled, it stays in Alberta, and it's returned uh, in in large part to Albertans to compensate them for that increase in electricity cost. Same story in Saskatchewan. We see over nearly 80% of the money raised in Saskatchewan to pay for emissions would stay in Saskatchewan. And so we absolutely reject the notion that this is some massive transfer of wealth. Well, can you explain how that is the case? Uh, that is because the what we did is we modeled, well, first of all, um, you know, it, it has to do with the way that we set up the policy package. And so what, one of the features we built in is to actually give some of this money that's raised by putting a price on pollution, it generates literally billions of dollars in, in government revenue. Uh, and we built in a mechanism in which that revenue would go back, a portion of that revenue goes back to individuals to make sure that they don't face a higher price for electricity. So, you know, and we did that in a way that's specific region by region. So in a province like Quebec, um, where electricity is already very, very low emissions because they use so much hydro, they get a small check. In Alberta, it's uh, $940 per, uh, 
per individual, per person, to compensate for those increases. So we made sure that fairness was built into this. This is a solution that we believe works for all of Canada, and this is obviously uh, a, a policy issue. You know, uh, climate change is something that confronts all of Canada. Claire Demers uh, from the Pemina Institute, just the final question for you. What do you think will happen to your report now? Well, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, we were very disappointed to see, particularly Minister Prentice federally, because I'm based here in Ottawa, and so, uh, you know, he dismissed this report as irresponsible. And to us, it's actually the government that's irresponsible to have gone four years and still not put in place any of the major policies that we need to deal with climate change. So we released this report just really a month before a very big UN climate summit is going to take place in Copenhagen. And the target that we modeled, that two degrees target, is what the world community is hoping that Canada will do. And so we did this in order to show Canadians and you know other people who are following Canada's performance around the world that it's possible for Canada to do its fair share. So we're sincerely hoping that this report will, you know, go in and, and be able to influence policymakers and decision makers as they're deciding what Canada can do in Copenhagen. Claire Demers, Associate Director of the Climate Change Program at the Pemmin Institute, thank you very much for joining us on Alert Radio. Thanks for having me. Hello, my name is Cy Gonick. I'm going to do a, uh, a very uh, an interview that I'm looking forward to a great deal. Thirty-six years ago, the Berkeley campus of the University of California was the first site of a student revolt that was to become a worldwide phenomenon. It, it was known as the free speech movement. And this week, the students at, at that campus, joined by faculty and unions on campus, are holding a series of events to call attention to the drastic cutbacks to post-secondary education launched by the California state government headed by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Similar actions are being organized elsewhere in the state, and a call has gone out for a general strike on November 18th to protest pending tuition increases. We have on the phone in his office on the UC campus Richard Walker, Professor of Geography and Co-Director of Global Metropolitan Studies. Welcome to Alert Radio, Professor Walker. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm uh, One of the reasons I'm, I'm ha- so happy to do this interview, Richard, is that I was a student on the, uh, at the um, UC campus uh, in, uh, in the uh, early 60s when the free speech movement was, uh, was underway. And so I have very strong recollections of that, and um, I'm quite curious to know uh, really what's going on today so many years later. Uh, So talk to us about the uh, post-secondary cutbacks in the state. How extensive are they, and why are they happening? Well, it's it's very dire. Um, We've had cuts before and declining kind of declining share of the state budget for years. But with the current recession, the California budget has gone off a cliff. The state of California has cut, a, cut about 20% to 25% in one year. And that's been passed on down to pretty much everybody, including higher education. I don't think we're 
suffering necessarily more than anyone, although a lot of us would like to see prisons get less and higher education more because they're about to pass us as a share of the state budget. So the, the upshot of this is that all of us are, we have um, pay cuts, which are called furloughs, uh, 5 to 10% for everyone, uh, quite considerable layoffs of staff, cancellation of classes, loss of lecturers, and uh, the big solution at the level of the university is to raise student fees. And this has been going on uh, steadily for almost 20 years, for reasons I can explain later, but uh, the fee hike this year is going to be basically a third. And uh, that's several thousand dollars, and it's a huge blow to the students. So I think uh, the fee hikes are a bit, operate a little bit like the draft in the Vietnam War. Boy, does it get everybody's attention mm-hmm. very quickly. Uh, just uh, a few words Richard, on why uh, why is this happening? Why is the state so short of money in California, requiring well, these drastic measures? Right, it's more than the recession. Uh, the state has been going downhill uh, on its finances for thirty years. This goes back to uh, our notorious Proposition Thirteen and the tax revolt, which really starts in California in nineteen seventy-eight. Uh, as you may recall, we sent Ronald Reagan to conquer the world in 1980, and he carried the tax revolt to the federal level. And the combination was undermining property taxes uh, for local governments, which just left, left them all devastated, uh, undermining corporate taxes and other essential estate taxes at the state level, and then federal redistribution also started to dry up support for local and state governments. So the combination's been quite deadly, and it has been a what I'd like to call a long, slow train wreck. Right, right. Okay, now, Richard, uh, explain to our listeners what you and your faculty and the students and the unions on campus have been doing to draw attention to the situation. You've had a week-long series of events, I understand? Oh, yeah, and more than that. I mean, we... Um, we started actually before the term, even in August. The faculty were so appalled by these drastic cuts coming down. were basically announced by the higher administration without any cons- consultation with faculty, let alone with students and staff. And uh, we started getting organized as a group called Save the University. Uh, the unions have also organized, of course, and the students have organized in several different groups um, uh, ever since the term began back in late August. Now, you say, you the, say organized, first, but what have you been doing? Well, the first thing that happened was a, a walkout called on September 24th, which was preceded by a, a teach-in on uh, September 23rd. We had thousands of people walked off of work, out of classes. We had a crowd on Sproul Plaza that you've hardly seen since the days of the free speech movement or the anti-Vietnam War days. That's about five, 6,000 people. And that was extremely galvanizing. People suddenly realized that there was a lot of solidarity and a lot of uh, anger and upset about this. Then the students did uh, occupations of two of our libraries, because one of the things that happened was library cutbacks. Libraries were closed on weekends. And they so they had study-ins where they took over a couple of libraries and stayed all night, and the result of which was that the libraries were reopened. And then uh, this last week we had this uh, higher week of higher education where we brought in 
at a big forum with speakers about the state government and its uh, plight and the mess that the state budget is in and ways to solve it to try to get students to see beyond just complaining about the administration and the university and the fee hikes to see that this is a much bigger problem that we're all caught up in. And it's really a problem as a Naomi Klein, as a Canadian, was down here yes. uh, speaking about California as a good case of the shock doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, we are. We're just neoliberalism brought home, which, uh, in which people say, look, we can't raise taxes. You, these things like free public education are not a right, they're a privilege, and you've got to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And some of us feel that's exactly the wrong thing, that California has been dedicated to public education for 50 years or more, and that this is, of course, has helped make the University of California in probably the greatest public university in the world, Berkeley, one of the great universities of the world, and California, one of the economic powerhouses of the world. All right, Richard. Now, tell us. Well, tell I, I'm sorry, I'll just, uh, yeah. And then we're going to have this strike is coming up in November. Yes. Uh, tell us about the call for a general strike. Is that within a strike within the university system only, or are you talking about a general strike encompassing all workers in the state? No, I wish it was, <laughs> I wish it was a ladder, <laughs> but it, uh, it's the university. Okay. But what we're trying to do is get, um, there was a huge meeting last week of people, students and staff and faculty from all the higher education systems. You know, California not only has nine now, 10 campuses of the University of California, but we have 30, almost 30 campuses of the state university and 50, 60 campuses of the community colleges. So trying to get solidarity across all those, get people mobilized across all those. Now, November 18th is a particularly important day because the day the regents of the university are going to vote on the fee increases. So, you know, it's, one, it's a day that kind of has everybody's attention focused. So do you, think strike, this, uh, do you think this strike is going to happen? And, well, and, I think, oh, yes. Something's definitely going to happen. The, uh, the and, unions, and, there's only one union that actually has a legal right to strike. You know, their unions are very hamstrung in the United States. But there will be supportive action on that day, and there will be pickets, and uh, should be a large number of students in classes either not held or held off campus that day. And what's uh, the objective of the, of the, of the strike? It's uh, to try and get the regents not to uh, raise the fees, okay. or not to raise them as drastically as they are. I mean, okay. they, I mean the cry, the, the the cry is really, you know, don't solve the budget crisis on the back of the students. Right. And uh, this is really, you know, this is there are so many students. I, I have one, well, a couple of colleagues in our group who polled their classes, and a third of the students saying that they will not be able to register next year if the fees go up by a third. They just won't be able to do it. Right. Now, is this uh, revolt uh, that you're describing happening uh, anywhere else in the U.S., or is this uh, strictly a California happening? Well, I think right now it's pretty dramatic in California. There are other public universities that are in deep trouble uh, all across the U.S., and... uh, California, I think, is the worst because our budget crisis is by far the worst because we have the most crazy budgeting system. You have to get a two-thirds vote in both houses of the legislature to pass a budget. Mm -hmm. And so the Democrats have about 65% in both houses, but they don't have two-thirds. And so the Republicans have basically held the state hostage 
Uh, the Republican Governor Schwarzenegger has gone along with that. And that means no tax increases, no revenue increases. So all you can do is cut, cut, cut. Mm-hmm. So we have this bizarre phenomenon in which when Obama is overwhelmingly elected, California was his biggest supporter, practically. probably delivered more Obama votes than anyone. And yet we're ruled by a clique of Republicans who say no taxes. Mm-hmm. And California, therefore, is following in the footsteps, footsteps of one of our native sons, Herbert Hoover, in doing a deflationary policy in the middle of a great recession. Well, Richard uh, Walker, um, we're going to be looking for you on our TV screens on November the 18th. <laughs> Would you wave to us? <laughs> I'll do that. Okay. I hope, it, I hope we, we make the TV news that far. Yeah. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for the interview. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon, and today I'd like to start by sharing a memory of being in grade 9, and young Naomi Powell, my schoolmate, coming up to me and saying, Mitch, would you like to join the Band of Bomb group? And the truth of the matter is, if she would have asked me, Mitch, would you like to join the Butterfly Club? I would have done that too, but I joined the Band of Bomb group, and before I knew it, not too long in, I was one of the leaders of the Band of Bomb group. Canadian Students for Nuclear Disarmament, and it led me into all kinds of trouble. But at exactly that same time, I began to listen to songs just like this. I come and stand at every But none can hear my silent tread I knock and yet remain unseen For I am dead, for I am dead I'm only seven, although I died In Hiroshima long ago I'm seven now as I was then When children die, they do not grow My hair was scorched by a swirling flame My eyes grew dim, my eyes grew blind Death came and turned my bones to dust And that was scattered by the All that I ask is that 
about songwriting is the way you can sometimes take a song and describe something and it's really about something else altogether. These next two songs are, are songs written really uh, in, the, in the framework of World War II, but really they were both about Vietnam. And, and the first one is about a woman who wrote a letter to an editor about what had happened to her in Germany in the war. And Vietnam was beginning to rage in America, and this person wrote this letter, and our hero, Pete Seeger, took this letter and turned it into a song. And here is Annie DeFranco with Lisa Cavalich. Just a bit to turn the tide. 
Perhaps I can tilt my children's lips later on their own children. But at least in the future, they need not be silent when they're asked where was your mother. I was part of a good platoon When we're on maneuvers in Louisiana One night by the light of the moon As captain said we gotta ford the river That's where it all began When we're knee deep in the big muddy And the damn fool kept yelling To push on Sergeant said, sir, are you sure this is the way back to base? Sergeant, I once crossed this river not a mile above this place. It'll be a little soggy, but we'll keep on slogging. We'll soon be on dry ground. When we're waist deep in the big muddy and the damn fool kept yelling to push on. Captain, sir, with all this gear, no man will be able to swim. Sergeant, don't be a nervous nelly, the captain said to him. All we need is a little determination, follow me, I'll lead on. But we're neck deep in the big muddy and the damn fool kept yelling to push on. All of a sudden, the moon clouded over, all we heard was a gurgling cry. And a second later, the captain's helmet was all that floated by. The sergeant said, turn round, men, I'm in charge from now on. 
And I just made it out of the big muddy with a captain dead and gone. Stripped and dived and found his body stuck in the old quicksand. I guess she didn't know the water was deeper than the place where he'd once been. But another stream had joined the muddy a half mile from where we'd gone. Well, we're lucky to get out of the big muddy when that damn fool kept yelling to push on. To draw conclusions, I'll leave that to yourself. Maybe you're still walking, maybe you're still talking, maybe you've still got your health. But every time I hear the news, that old feeling comes back on. We're neck deep in the big muddy, and the damn fools keep yelling to push on. Knee deep in the big muddy, and the fools keep yelling. We steep in the big muddy and the damn fools keep yelling. Push on. We steep, neck deep, we'll be drowning before too long. We're neck deep in the big muddy and the damn fools keep yelling. So push on. That was Dick Gochen with Waist Deep in the Big Muddy, written by Pete Seeger, and before that, Annie DeFranco with Lisa Kavalich. I'll see you next week when we do our Remembrance Day show and we remember the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion and the 15th Brigade. is Alert Radio for the week of November 6, 2009. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jeff Hughes. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension Magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And of course, Mitch Bedolik with Music is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com. 
We'd like to remind alert listeners that the current issue of Canadian Dimension Magazines is now on newsstands. For a glimpse of the articles and content, check out CanadianDimension.com.